reading will be from Judges 6, 1, and then 7 to 14. If everyone would like to open their Bibles. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you out, brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in, the, in whose lands you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash and the Abyssinite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they, when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? As we continue to go through Scripture looking for stories of God's amazing power at work. There, there are a myriad of them. And it's interesting because it often involves people who on the surface seem to be very unlikely candidates as far as their usefulness is concerned. But God loves using unlikely people, and I'm glad He does. He uses flawed people. He uses failing people. He uses sinful people because if he didn't, he wouldn't have anybody to use. God uses for his own purposes and for his own plans those who on the surface appear very, very unlikely. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's often referred to as the faith chapter, depicting the heroes of the faith, right? That's what we look at. In verse 32, starting with verse 32, we read these familiar words, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and ministered justice and gained what was uh, promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, whose weakness was turned to strength. Fascinating statement. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, Paul says, and the foolish things to shame the wise. Why? So that no one may boast before him. There's a couple of names in this list here in Hebrews that I'd like for us to look at today and next Sunday. As we see God's power at work in unlikely circumstances. The book of Hebrews mentions Gideon and Samson among the rest of them. Both of them judges from the Old Testament. Not judges in the sense of legal judges, uh, lawyers and judges and that kind of legal system. But more in the sense of a deliverer for God's people. And we'll actually talk a little bit more about that concept next week. 
But these two are very unusual characters. Both of them are stories of weakness and strength. Gideon goes from weakness to strength. Samson goes from strength to weakness. But in both cases, they are useful to God in very, very important ways. Now, these are men with serious faults, serious flaws. They probably wouldn't have been chosen for leadership by any search committee. Gideon was too weak to be of any use, and Samson was too strong to be of any use. Gideon didn't believe that he could accomplish anything, whereas Samson, well, he believed he could accomplish anything. Neither of those kinds of people really make good leadership. One who feels that he has nothing to offer, and the other who feels that he's all that, and he's got everything to offer. Well, let's begin by looking at Gideon this morning, where we find him in Judges chapter 6. Verse 1 very simply states a situation that characterized Israel at that moment in time. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he, the Lord, gave them into the hands of the Midianites. For seven years they were bordered by the Midianites and the Amalekites. For seven years there had been constant terrorizing onslaught coming from these two groups of people. They raided Israel's land, they destroyed their crops, they pillaged them, they they stole their livestock, they killed some of the people. In fact, they were such a formidable threat that the people wound up hiding from them in the mountains and in the caves. Uh, They even tried to hide while they were doing their daily work because they were afraid of being raided. This went on for seven years until they finally cried out to God for help. And help comes. In fact, verse 11 there in chapter 6, the angel of the Lord came. Now that's help from the highest level. We'll talk about that a little bit more in, in a second here. But this is where the Lord selects a man named Gideon to be the answer to this distress, to deliver Israel from the Midianites and the Amalekites. And the Lord appears to Gideon in an unusual place. Gideon is threshing out his wheat in a wine press. That's bizarre. Have you ever thought about that? Why in the world can't do that? Wine press is an enclosed area, a a kind of a deep pit where you stamp on the grapes and allow the juice to flow. You don't beat wheat in a wine press. Because you beat wheat on a hilltop, an open, uh, open area where the wind's blowing and, and the wind blows away the chaff and, the, and the, 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 the grain just falls straight down. What in the world is he doing trying to sift wheat and thresh in a wine press? Well, verse 7 says he was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites, afraid of what they were going to come steal, and whatever. You see, he was afraid of the Midianites, as everybody else were. Afraid of their raiding, afraid of their stealing his wheat, and probably afraid for his life. And as he works in fear and hiding, an astonishing event takes place. The angel of the Lord appears to him. Now, the writer of Scripture here in Judges describes him as the angel of the Lord. But Gideon saw him as a man. If you look up, you know, if you Google that, that phrase and you look up pictures, they've got this angel looking with the wings uh, sitting there under, under an oak tree. But that's not what Gideon was looking at. 
All of a sudden, as Gideon is working, a man appears near the wine press. Now, we know that the angel of the Lord appears as a man because there's no shock and awe and, and fear and panic when he sees this person. If he, the angel of the Lord, appeared as a heavenly being, the angel of the Lord, there would have been sheer panic. Verse 11 just casually states, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah where Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. Just a regular person. So who was this angel? Was it Gabriel? Was it Michael? The great archangel Michael? No. Because if it were them, they're always referred to as the angel Gabriel or the archangel Michael. Anytime the designation the angel, not an angel, the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament is referring to the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus himself. And we see the angel of the Lord appear in other examples, such as to Abraham in Genesis chapter 2, as he picks up that knife. You, you, you know the story. He's about to slay his son Isaac uh, as a sacrifice. And it says, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. This is the angel of the Lord speaking. Do not do anything to him. Now I, now I know that you fear God. Because, listen, you have not withheld from me, God himself, your son, your only son. That's the angel of the Lord. We see the angel of the Lord appear to Moses in the burning bush. Usually we say, oh, God appeared to Moses. We usually just say, uh, assume that, but listen carefully to the words of Scripture in Exodus 3. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord, you see the designation change, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him, same person, same voice, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is the angel of the Lord saying, I am the God of. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So it was the angel of the Lord, God himself, in the form of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who appeared to Moses there in the burning bush. In our story today, Jesus, the angel of the Lord, appears as a regular man. He sits down on a rock under the oak tree and has a conversation with Gideon. The only surprise on the part of Gideon was that the man was suddenly sitting there under the oak tree. He, he was working, obviously, he looked up, and here's, here's this guy sitting there. And verse 12 says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Really? Mighty warrior seems a little over the top at that point, doesn't it? That's probably what Gideon thought. Here he was, basically a coward, weak in bravery, so, so afraid of the Midianites and Amalekites that he's trying to do his job threshing the wheat in, in a wine press, in a pit. A mighty warrior? Was Jesus being sarcastic here? 
No, I think Jesus was seeing Gideon as what he was going to be with the power of God. There's a lesson for us here as well. We often don't see ourselves as much as anything maybe that God could use, someone who God could really use in a mighty way. But God sees us differently. With all the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we've gone over that and over that, God sees each of us as a mighty warrior if we will step up and allow God to use us. Now, it took a while for Gideon to get it because he didn't see himself like that. He doubted. Now remember, Jesus had just said, the Lord is with you. And we read in verse 13, pardon me, Lord. Gideon was a very polite person. Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midianites? He's polite, but it sounds like he's a little ticked. He's saying, if the Lord is with us, something isn't right here. It's not adding up. I don't see it. I don't get it. And rather than trying to answer that question or reason with Gideon, verse 14 says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. I, am I not sending you? That sounds like a great commission, doesn't it? Go. And I'll be with you. Now, it sounds like the Lord is telling Gideon to go in his own strength. Those are the kind of the words he used, right? The strength that you have. But that's not what Jesus is saying there. That's not what the angel of the Lord was saying there. If the Lord is sending him, the Lord is going to be with him, and it will be God's strength that will be upon him as he goes. Another mini lesson for us, if Jesus tells us to go and I will be with you, it's going to be his power that will be upon us as we go and do what he wants us to accomplish. That's just how it works in our obedience to him. Paul tells us that we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And the Lord told Gideon and the Lord is telling us, go in the strength you have. Whose strength? God's strength. But Gideon still wasn't buying it. Still didn't make sense in his mind. He says in verse 15, pardon me, Lord. Okay, polite again. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. He certainly didn't have any ego problem there. Oh, woe is me, I am nothing. Gideon is focused on himself on his power and his, his uh, wherewithal and his abilities and his clout, and he knows he's got nothing to offer. This is not a man of great faith, certainly not a mighty warrior. It's a man of weakness at that moment. Yet the angel of the Lord calls him a mighty warrior, not because of what he was, but what he would become. God sees us differently. And here's the Lord's reply in verse 16. The Lord answered, I will be with you. It's the second time. It's like saying, how many times do I have to tell you? I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So the Lord comes to this faithless 
coward, to put it bluntly, at that moment in time. And he tells them he's going to accomplish this incredible feat of victory and bravery. And he's going to deliver Israel, and he's going to literally eliminate all the Midianites all at one time. Well, not only is he a faithless coward, but we find that he is a faithless doubting coward. And so he demands a sign. A sign from God. Okay, God, prove it. Prove what you're saying to me before I do anything. And that's really what asking for signs from God is all about, isn't it? In verse 21, the Lord graciously (laughs) gives him a sign. Didn't have to. And we find in the next few verses that Gideon went and prepared a meal and, and of meat and unleavened bread for his guest because to him, again, this was a man sitting there and this is what the cultural thing was to do for them. And he offers the meal to the man and places it on a rock. Then in verse 21 it says, The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand and fire flamed up from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread and the angel of the Lord disappeared. That was a sign. That was a sign, and that's when Gideon finally got it. Verse 22, when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Folks, that wasn't excitement. That was fear. The fear of a sinful man, a doubting, faithless, cowardly man standing in the presence of a holy God. You see, whenever anybody had a vision of God, the fear was that they were going to die. It was Gideon's fear, it was Isaiah's fear, it was Moses' fear, and I believe it was probably the three disciples' fear when they were up on that Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus showed all of his glory and they fell face, face down. But immediately it says, the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid, you're not going to die. So that night, the pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus himself came to Gideon and he gives him some instruction. He tells them to tear down the altar to Baal, which is near his father's home. Now, they should have done that a long time ago. God had told, instructed them to tear them all down and have no idolatry among them. But the reason they were getting attacked was because they weren't dealing with the idolatry that was among them. So he tells them to tear down that altar to Baal, which is near the father's house. So here goes, cowardly, frightened Gideon, and he goes and does it. No no doubt he did it with fear and trembling, because verse 27 says, so Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So not only was he afraid of the Midianites, but he seemed to be afraid of everybody. Courage was not a familiar familiar trait to Gideon. But you got to give him credit. Got to give him credit where credit is due. He does what he's told because he knows he's been in the presence of a divine visitor. And we're finding that God is patient and a gracious teacher, and a gracious encourager, and he still is that for us today. Now, jumping ahead a little bit in the story, Gideon hears the Midianite invaders have returned. So Gideon summons the men of Israel to fight. 
And the story becomes very, very interesting here. We find that Gideon has grown some divine backbone. And he's starting to take on the responsibility of leadership. And so he says, we need to fight. No more hiding. We need to fight. And he calls together as many men that want to come out and join him. And a volunteer army of 32,000 men respond. That's pretty good. Before this, they were all hiding. So they're out ready to fight. And we find that Gideon is still afraid. Listen, starting in verse 36. Gideon said to God, "Um, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised... Now, he's going to ask for another sign. He already asked for one. He's going to ask for another sign. Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. That was heavy dew just on that fleece. Then Gideon said to God, Um... Don't be angry with me, but let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. And that night God did did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. You see, his faith is so faltering. He's been used to being basically a coward. He is so fearful, he's afraid still And yet the Lord consents and graciously answers his request. Folks, this putting out of a fleece comes from a place of fear and doubt. Please remember that. This is not something to emulate as a wonderful spiritual thing to do. Trying to put out a fleece before the Lord is a sign of weakness and lack of trust in God. There was nothing noble about it. This was doubt. Gideon's action is not the pattern for believers to follow. I've seen people proudly say, I I put out a fleece and, and God did this. We don't test the Lord. That's very clear in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then Jesus fired back at Satan with that same phrase, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's not pleasing to the Lord. We are to accept His Word. If we're truly consecrated, if we're truly sanctified, we are to blindly be obedient to the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. And yet we find in Gideon's case here, God graciously condescends to his doubt and does this for him. He is going to make this guy into a warrior if it's the last thing he does. Now, once these signs have come, Gideon has a little bit more faith. So he collects his army of 32,000 men to face the Midianites, and they probably get together to try to figure out a battle strategy. I mean, that's that's what we do, right? We plan. We strategize. And it's very logical. After all, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves, right? Hmm. I heard a hmm. That's good. Did you know that this is probably the most often quoted phrase that is not in the Bible? The saying, apparently, I was, did, did a little research on this, usually attributed to Ben Franklin, quoted in Poor Richard's Almanac back in 1757. But apparently, it actually originated with Algernon Sidney in 1698 in an article titled Discourses Concerning Government. Not in the Bible. Whatever the original source of that saying was, the Bible actually teaches the opposite, doesn't it? God helps the helpless. 
Isaiah 25, 4 declares, For you have been, de- uh, been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in this distress, a refuge for the storm, a shade from the heat. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6 tells us, At just the right time when we were still what? Powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. And here was a wheat farmer that God was going to make into a general. And it was going to be all God. It's going to be God's strategy and it was going to be God's power. And no one was going to doubt that. We have no idea what Gideon's strategy might have been. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But they were camped across the valley from the enemies. But they had 32,000 men. So they were a little bit encouraged with that. Pretty good for a volunteer army. And the Lord said to Gideon, verse 2 of chapter 7, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. He knows that that's what Israel would say. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, or 10,000 remained. Not real encouraging for Gideon. This was going to be God's battle. 22,000 men chose basically the lesser of two evils in their minds, right? Putting up with the marauding and the stealing and, and periodic killing against, in their minds, certain death. So Gideon and the people would have been helped if they had remembered the words of Moses who told the Israelites way back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, what? Don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. He is always with us. You know, it's so easy to be fearful and fall back on our own wisdom and our own strategy and our own planning when we get our eyes off of Jesus and forget that the Lord your God is with you. But the army was still too big. God wanted to make sure that His power and His glory would be seen. So He sent them down to the river to get a drink. You remember There the Lord told Gideon, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Now, those who lap water with their tongue like a dog. (laughs) Seriously, who does that? Apparently 300 of them did. The rest of them knelt to drink. Now, God said, I want those 300, not the 9,700. Send them home. Why? What's going on here? This picture that I found here depicts what we would normally think of when we think of lapping like a dog. Okay, you get down, put your face in the water, and lick. But this is virtually, humanly impossible without sucking water up into your nose. Try it sometime. I believe the man in the blue would be more like the ones lapping water out of one hand, while the others would have put their spears down, got down on both knees, cut both of their hands, and drank. The ones who were lapping like a dog out of one hand, they had their spear in their hand, they were being alert. God wants spiritually alert people. 
You know, 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So many Christians are not alert. They are not alert and aware of the spiritual battle that is raging around us. And God chose those 300 men, men who were alert and ready. And I think Gideon was seriously terrified by this whittling down of his army. How is this going to work? But God understood that. You know, God, God understands our weaknesses. God understands our doubting. He, he understands our humanness. Listen to what God graciously, graciously does for Gideon. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 7. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. Verse 10, if you are afraid to attack, he knows Gideon, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. Why? Because they were afraid. And God understands our fear. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples has settled in the valley thick as locusts. That's a lot of them. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. They had a mighty army down there. And Gideon arrived just as a man was telling his friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. See, the Midianites were terrified. They had done their reconnaissance and thought they knew that there were 32,000 warriors up there on the hills. And they were afraid. And you know, there are often those times when God wants us to just trust Him. Just trust Him. That's His ideal. But I think also He knows that we're at different levels in our faith. Every, every believer is. And so graciously, He'll give a little extra push just to get over that hump, to step out and, and trust Him. And that's what He did there with Gideon. Go down and listen, and then you'll be encouraged. So when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. Then he returned to camp of Israel and called, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. At God's direction, he divides those 300 men in the dead of night into three companies of 100, 100, and 100, surrounding the Midianite camp. Their weapons were trumpets, torches, and empty pitchers. No swords. And you know the story. They were to surround the Midianite camp on the hills around them, blow their trumpets, smash, smash those pitchers to the ground uh, while holding those blazing torches in the night, and they were to shout, the, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And that's exactly what they did. And with the cry, the silent stillness of the black night is shattered. With blasting trumpets, smashing pitchers, blazing torch, torches, yelling soldiers... And I would think that most of those Midianites probably woke up out of a sound sleep. They probably had guards awake, but the rest of them were sound asleep in the pitch darkness. And with the noise and clatter of the trumpets and torches, they were woken up. And they assumed, remember, they assumed 32,000 men with swords were already rushing into the camp. 
So everyone with a sword was probably an enemy. And they picked up their own swords and just started slashing and ended up killing each other. Scripture says the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. The rest of Judges chapter 7 and 8 describes the victorious pursuit of Gideon, and he and the 300 drove the Midianites out of Israel once and for all. And guess what then Israel wanted to do? Let's make Gideon king! Judges chapter 8, verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, make it a dynasty, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told him, I will not rule over you. Nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. What a phenomenal statement. Folks, that what, that's what God wants. That's always what God has wanted. And you know what the results, results are if we give ourselves to the Lord and allow Him to rule? The same result that Gideon enjoyed Back there in that time, listen to Judges 8, verse 28. During Gideon's lifetime, after that battle, the land had peace for 40 years because he allowed God to rule. Amazing what God did with a weak, faithless coward, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. A very weak man made strong in the Lord, and God says to us, remember, remember, what I did. This is what I do. I did it for them. I'll do it for you. Just trust me. Earlier we mentioned that there in Hebrews chapter 11 34 about these men of renown that out of weakness they were made strong. Every one of them. And as we look at our own lives and perhaps even as at our church, it's easy to wonder, God, can you use me? Can you use us in our weakness? And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. Yes, he can. You remember when the Apostle Paul was suffering with this terrible agony that he referred to as a thorn in the flesh. Sometimes we think, ah, just a little pricker. You know, what's the big deal? I believe there's a terrible agony, something horrible going on there because he, was, he begged God three times to take that away. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, the Lord said to me, Paul said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. It's only when we see ourselves as weak that we can be made strong in the Lord. Gideon was weak. Weak enough to become strong in the Lord. Samson was strong which we'll look at next week, too strong to really be everything God wanted him to be. In fact, his greatest feat was a strength that came out of his weakness at the end. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. It's just counterintuitive, isn't it? It's not cultural. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And it's all God. And it's all God. Let's bow our heads in prayer.
Father, we want it to be all you. We are human. You know us. You know us well. We each have weaknesses. Some of us are weaker than others. It's easy to wonder, what can you do with us? What can you do with me? What can you do with me? I'm speaking here personally. What can you do with me? Father, I pray that you would embolden us with your promises and remembering back to what you do best. You take weakness and you bring it into strength. You take a weak person, you take a weak church, you take a weak uh, country, whatever it is, you can, you can take that. And as we step forward in faith and trust you and, and be fully consecrated to you and fully sanctified, asking the Holy Spirit to work in us, that's when you, your power is going to be manifested and you're going to make us strong. Not our own. There's nothing that we can boast about. It's all about you. Father, I pray even that we, we would put aside our own personal strategies and plans and how to do this and how to do that. Maybe we could do this to do, do, the, do the other thing and, and just say, God, God, show us your strategy. Use us and work in us. And let your name be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.